Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. I'm a rambler, I'm a gambler. On this edition of The Big Interview, the reigning queen of folk music, Joan Baez. Good afternoon, Joan. Good afternoon. Thanks for the coffee. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. They can leave me alone. Joan Baez has been captivating audiences for 60 years. For my name, it is nothing. My age, it means less. She's best known for both her activism and her angelic voice. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. Her unmistakable and breathtaking soprano, along with her fingerstyle guitar playing, defined an era. Joan Baez was born in 1941. When she was 17 years old, her family moved to Massachusetts, where she made a name for herself performing in local coffee shops. Within a few years, Joan Baez had a record deal and a self-titled debut album that went gold. In 1961, Baez introduced the world to a struggling singer-songwriter named Bob Dylan. And together, they brought folk music back to life. Joan Baez rose to prominence during an era of mounting social and political unrest. She used her growing platform to shed light on issues like civil rights and the anti-war movement. Her music became the soothing and enlightening soundtrack to a tumultuous time, and her activism made her an icon. Freedom goes back to its roots of the word, which mean peace and love, and I think that without the right to live, there's no, there are no other rights. Baez continues to fight for the causes in which she believes. Just take what you need and leave the rest, but they should never have taken the very best. In 2007, Joan Baez received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. And in 2017, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Joan Baez has recorded dozens of albums, but she recently announced that her Whistle Down the Wind tour would be her last. I'm the last. 
I caught up with Joan Baez at her beautiful home in Northern California. Joan, thank you very much for doing this. It's absolutely my pleasure. First of all, tell us where we are. What a beautiful place. <laughs> We're in an old house that we've just kept changing over the years in Woodside, California. So it's birds are out, sun's out, welcome. Well, thank you. You've been here, what, 50 years? Close to 50 years, yeah. <laughs> wow. I don't think I know anyone, well, maybe with one or two exceptions, who lived in a house for yeah. 50 years at a time. I thought that uh, my family traveled all the time, and I thought, oh, been here four years, it's probably time to go. And then I thought, why? <laughs> you know, that was 40-some years ago. Well, tell me what you're doing with yourself now. Oh, I'm making a lot of decisions. I'm seeing what it's like at this point, at age 77. What are my choices, you know? And um, trying to make intelligent decisions. I'm painting, which is kind of the newish part. Um, I've made the decision to end the formal touring, meaning getting on the bus and, you know, racking my body and going all night and getting up and getting on the stage and singing for two hours and getting on the bus, you know. So I'll stop that part. It doesn't mean I can't do a concert here and there. So that tour right now is extended a half a year already because I realized the places that I needed to go back to and say goodbye to. So that's part of what I'm doing. Well, you have the album out and you're doing the tour. The tour will take out, what, most of the rest of this year? And it's going into the next year, probably till the summer. And tell me about the album. The album was something that just was time for it to happen, um, thinking about this tour. And so the trick with an album is finding the songs. And um, some of them I asked somebody to write, some of them were obvious. And then a couple of them just dropped out of the sky, like the president saying Amazing Grace. And that without that and Another World, it would be a nice folk album, but it wouldn't have the depth that it has in these times where we're confronting so much evil. <laughs> confronting so much evil. Mm -hmm. What evil are you talking about? What evil? Uh, the political atmosphere and setup and, and the situation we find ourselves in being something that I couldn't have dreamed up. You know, and we always say, they say, oh, it, it, it's worse than it ever was, but this is way worse than it ever was. And I've been around a long time, and so have you. And how you confront what we're up against is a constant question. And to hear you talk about being worried about the, the <laughs> present time, you were pretty worried in the 60s, as you made clear. Uh, yeah, and there was a clear goal that we saw every morning that you get up and do. And we had the sense of togetherness, that we could do something together. And then, no, and in the end, it was international cooperation and um, a movement that ended the war way late 
And I would say, I'll throw it in early, but I think the closest thing we've had to that feeling right now is the high school students who are, want the guns out of their schools. That is a movement. Well, if one of those students were sitting in front of you now, what would you say to them? I'd ask them to tell me about it. And then I'd tell them I want to paint them. I want to paint portraits of these kids. <laughs> Well, I know you've gotten fairly deeply into painting in recent times, and I want to talk to you about that. But I want to come back to the music sure. for, the, for the moment. That You said you've made a decision. This won't necessarily be the last time you appear on stage, but right. the last time you're going to tour. Mm-hmm. How and why did you come to that decision? Was it strictly a matter of your voice? It's partly voice. My first vocal coach... I asked him one day, I was in my 30s, I said, how will I know when it's time to quit? And he said, your voice will tell you. So right now my voice is shouting at me. Um, I've reinvented it a number of times. I like this new invention. Um, And it's exhausting to keep up. It often doesn't come out the way I want to hear it without a whole lot extra work. And I thought, you know, it's been a long time doing this. And I've loved it, and I love the tour I'm on right now, and I'll miss it. And, and we were talking about it earlier, how do I take care of myself? When my mom was about 92, and I said, Mom, I think I'm going to quit the business. She said, oh, honey, but what about your fans? When she was about 98, I said, Mom, I think I'm going to quit. She said, you've done enough, honey. (laughs) In Charleston, in the month of June, the mourners gathered in a room The president seemed to speak some words And the cameras rolled and the nation heard But no one could say what must be said Up next, Joan reveals the inspiration her parents gave her to lead a pacifist movement of the 60s when the big interview with Dan Rather continues. For Joan Baez, leading a peace movement was a destiny born in her youngest years. Let's listen in to Dan Rather's big interview and find out how it started. Joan Baez was born in Staten Island, New York, but her family moved a lot during her childhood. Baez's parents were immigrants. Her mother left Scotland as a child, and her father, an accomplished physicist and professor, hailed from Mexico. She grew up with two sisters, Pauline and Mimi. Her parents were Quakers, and it was their belief in pacifism that would later inspire Joan Baez to become a leader in the anti-war movement of the 1960s and 70s. It's my understanding that you grew up in a Quaker environment. I did. Was that the early forming of your activism, or did that come later? No, I believe that I had a social awareness by the time I was 10. And we were living in the Middle East, and my family, my parents would have gatherings um, over there of my father's students who would come and, and spend silent time and then talk about what was going on in the world um, but I heard the discussions of violence nonviolence by the time I was 10 
And by the time I was 13, I think I'd pretty much made my mind up that there was only one way to be, and that was really to reject violence um, on as many levels as possible, although I know that someone of my friends said it would be better or healthier for all of us if there were more barroom brawls. <laughs> you know, you might get it out of your system. <laughs> but actually, by the time you were about 13, mm -hmm. it formed in your mind nonviolence. Well, it Be formed, acting, speak out. Well, it formed don't hurt anybody. Um, and then the be active came pretty close upon the heels of that because when I was 15, I did my first sit-in all by myself in high school because they were doing a kind of duck and cover. And I asked my dad how long it would take a missile to get from Moscow to Palo Alto High School. <laughs> and it was all fraud, you know. They were saying the, the siren will go off and... You all leave the school or have your parents pick you up. That was even weirder. So I thought, well, I'll just stay in school as a protest. And I spoke to the principal. He didn't know what on earth I was doing. But it was sort of an education for all of us to discuss it, the secretaries and the vice principal. And, um, and, and I was sure of myself. I want to ask you about the war that... Anybody who's read anything about you knows you went to North Korea, you went to Hanoi during the war, you were in a bomb shelter during B-52 raids and all that. Mm -hmm. Looking back on that period, I know you're proud of it, but do you have any regrets about anything you did during that period? You know, for the most part, I don't have regrets because I stuck to my foundation, which is nonviolence. I never really did any social activism that wasn't grounded in nonviolence. So, um, I mean, I think if somebody's been a, a lefty all their life and decided they're going to switch, you know, and vote for Trump, then you, then you say, I'm really embarrassed about all that stuff I did. Mm -hmm. But I'm really not embarrassed about any major thing that I was involved in. Have you ever met uh, Senator John McCain? Have you talked to him or corresponded with him? No, I have not. I did visit the POWs in Hanoi when I was there and took them letters. Um, and I always, you know, with when you visit prisons, prison camps, it's what I call pork and volleyball. Mm -hmm. They show you how well everybody's treated and we're all having yeah. good dinners here and everybody's playing sports. Sure. And I had enough brains to know that that wasn't what was going on. Um, and, and there wasn't much I could do there either. Well, there's a lot of history um, between the lines of what you're talking about. And you've been quoted as saying when you're on stage, you say, I don't make history, I am history. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of true. Uh, I know that when I walk out on the stage, I represent this a lifetime for a lot of people. They say it in different ways. You know, you were the... The background to my growing up was, was the music. Um, it also takes the pressure off me of what am I going to do? When I walk out on the stage, I've done, and I'm usually involved in something, but I know that it triggers people. I mean, they've said that they've forgotten about activism or something like that, and this 
helped remind them. Um, so, yeah, I, I am history. So are you. I'm not sure about that. Oh, I am. But we'll talk at another time. <laughs> okay. My father's own father, he waded that river. Nature called the money he made in his life. In 1967, Joan Baez was arrested following a peaceful protest. It was in jail that she met writer and fellow activist David Harris. The two soon married, and in 1969, they had a son. But the marriage didn't last, and Joan Baez spent the next few decades balancing her responsibilities as a prominent singer and activist with also being a mother. You married fairly early, and you have a son, Gabe. Mm -hmm. Do you or do you not think about the times when you were you know, making your way up into your iconic status, mm -hmm. which you now enjoy and deserve, but you were away from home a lot. Mm -hmm. It was the nature of what you do. Mm -hmm. You were touring. Yeah. You were away a lot. And looking back on it, did you spend enough time with Gabe when he was very young? No. And I would say I think about that more than I think about death. I can't quite get past that, wishing I'd been there more for both of us. You know, that I missed that time. And carrying that guilt around is not very useful for anybody. I'm still trying to shed it, but I was one day, I'm sure, talking about it, which I try to quit doing with him because it's a bore. And he said, Mom... You were there in the 60s doing what nobody else could do. Uh, you had to do it. I'm glad you were there. Just stop worrying about it, <laughs> you know? He was way ahead of me. And it sounds like you have a very good relationship with him now. I do. Which is not always the case when yeah. children grow up and one grows older. Well, it's the case if you're willing to go and get therapy together which we've been able to do enough so that we carry on our lives in a different way from the way we could have yeah. if we hadn't figured out a lot. I want to talk about your lifestyle at that time. You, bluntly put, you were terrific in crowds and in front of crowds, mm -hmm. but in one-to-one -one personal relationships, good. <laughs> prop problems. Yeah. Um, you know, I tackled a lot of stuff when I was about 50, because I had been so riddled with phobias and neuroses and all the things you couldn't see when I came out on stage. I looked cool as a cucumber, and I'm aware of that. Um, but when I was 19 or 20, I was ravaged by neuroses and panic attacks. We didn't have that expression back then, but that's <laughs> what they were. And it took years of therapy, deep therapy, um, and when I came out of that, <laughs> I, I, was a whole, I felt like a whole person. And I remember the therapist saying, well, now, sort of like, now you can go find a partner. I said, ah, I'm so comfortable as it is. I'm not, I ain't going nowhere. And, you know, if, I think if somebody passed by my field of vision and I, and I wasn't going like this, that there's a possibility that I could fall in love with somebody. But I think I'm so wary that I'm just going like this. 
because it's safer for me and because I've had such a lovely solitary life since I started that process. But well before that, and I'm not going to dwell on your personal life early on. I don't care. But let me just go down a list of people. Mickey Hart. <laughs> Mickey, what a doll. You know, a complete maniac. Grateful Dead and all. Grateful Dead and all. I mean, he came by here with a drum because he knew my son loved drumming. Gabe was really young. And there's Mickey out in the front yard banging on his giant drum and leaping around like a monkey. I mean, he was, he was just indescribably full of life. And his, it was his expression when I say, oh, I'm tired, I want to take a nap. He'd say, you can sleep when you die. You know, so it was this fireball of energy that I guess I was really attracted to. And Steve Jobs. Well, that's an odd one, because I never did figure that out. Uh, we were so different. But I'm sure I saw a side of Steve that a lot of people didn't see. He was sweet, and he was fascinating, because he was just the opposite of me. You know, we'd have these fights, he said, that he was going to create a computer that could make a Bach trio better than one had ever been played by human beings. Well, the problem is he probably could. If he'd lived long enough, he probably could have. And Bob Dylan? Bob, you know, I have a new rea reaction now when people say, what about Bob Dylan? It is such an honor to have been a part of his life and to share that music and to have, you know, loved him and even liked him. And um, that's a recent change for me because I was still hanging on to old stuff. And I just, I started painting. I'm doing commissions, and the first two commissions are for Bob Dylan. So I'm painting, and I'm, okay, I'll start listening to the music. And I just took a walk on the wild side with that music, and, it, and I thought, that's too great. That talent is too great to have any resentment about it, anything except a wholehearted feeling of caring and great gratefulness. What did you see and hear in Bob Dylan that made you say when virtually no one knew him, mm. listen to him? I never thought about that question because it seemed in a way so obvious. I mean, nobody put out words like that. Nobody just streamed them. Um, and he was, he was a ragamuffin, which of course appealed to me. You know, you can tell by the other lineup except Steve. <laughs> Um, I just knew. I mean, I knew. I went into this. Somebody said, this kid over at Gertie's Folk City, you got to go hear him. And everybody was talking about him, you know, in our folk circles. And so I went and I thought, Jesus, you know, I never heard anything like it. Never heard any words like that. You say you're looking for someone who'll pick you up each time you fall. Gather flowers for you constantly and to come each time you call. Next, here on the big interview, Joan Baez and the stories behind her biggest songs. When we come back to Dan Rather's big interview with Joan Baez, Joan gets real with Dan about her life and her biggest songs. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Dan Rather's Big Interview. Let's dig on some diamonds and dust and hear what the people were singing on the night they drove old Dixie down. With Diamonds and Rust became a chart-topping hit when Joan Baez released it in 1975. It is one of Joan Baez's most iconic and popular songs to date. Well, I'll be damned, here comes your ghost again. But that's not unusual, it's just that the moon is full and you happen to call. Well, I know, I know partly because you've talked about it uh, over the years, that you have written songs, you are a songwriter, mm-hmm. but you're perhaps better known for taking the songs of other people and giving mm-hmm. a new interpretation to those songs. If you had to pick one song that you would like to be known for, let's say your signature song, not necessarily something you've written, but mm-hmm. if it's that okay, what would you say that song would be? Well, see, I've only written one song that could be a signature song. I've written a lot of nice songs, but I think because of the nature of Diamonds and Rust and how deeply where it came from is very, very deep, and it turned out to be, you know, sort of the most universal song I ever wrote. So that is a signature song, whether I like it or not. True or untrue, that it was about, at least in part, of your time with Bob Dylan and the breakup of Dylan. Oh, absolutely. No question about it. No. Now, what about the night they drove old Dixie down? And I will tell you, it's one of my favorites. I can't say there's any one favorite, but one of my favorites. How did how did you come to do that? I can't remember how it started, or where I heard it the first time, but I know that it was Christopherson time period in my life, and Nashville, and Quadraphonic Studios, and you know great players. Um, I had never met any of them before. Kenny Buttries was there, that guy named Pig, who played piano, who played backwards. He was blind. He could stand there and play play it backwards. So it was a live time. And I started doing this song, and the chorus was this catchy thing, and we invited everybody from the studio, upstairs, downstairs, secretaries, didn't matter. They all came piling into the into the recording room and we sang that chorus. The night they drove old Dixie down may be one of Joan Baez's best known songs, but one of her more personal songs was written for her younger sister Mimi. Sweet Sir Galahad came in What about Sweet Sir Galahad? Sweet Sir Galahad is the first song I ever wrote. Uh, it never occurred to me to write a song until I was about 10 years in. And it might even have been Dylan say, why don't you write a song? Oh, <laughs> that's a thought. And uh, it was my sister Mimi's second wedding. 
and um, I just remember her standing there with these daisies in her hair, and her heart was going so hard, the little daisies were going like this. And that's where the image started. And he had this long, beautiful hair, and he was Sweet Sir Galahad. And uh, to my shock, I wrote a song. And um, I haven't written a song except for that silly, nasty man song about Trump in 27 years. Well, we haven't talked about what you call that silly, nasty man song about Trump. Let's talk about that. It, it's not your usual kind of <laughs> music. Not at all. And it just, I mean, if we have a few things to thank that man for, they brought out you know, creative juices and people who weren't even creative before. Um, that, that song just, it can't, you know, the problem with that song is that there aren't enough, there isn't enough time to put all the verses in. I realized after I'd written five or six clever verses that anybody should go on writing the song. I say to the audience, you know, go home and write a verse of your own because it's endless. There are a number of things you could write about. was only 22 years old when she appeared on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial alongside her future mentor and friend, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Together, they led a crowd of 250,000 people in singing, We Shall Overcome. Well, we can't talk about your singing and music without talking about We Shall Overcome, mm -hmm. which you sang with Dr. Martin Luther King mm -hmm. and that great event at the Lincoln Memorial in the mall yeah. in the mid-60s. Talk to me about Dr. King. As you know, I covered him as a young reporter for a time, but of course, yeah. you saw him much more up close and personal. Yeah, I saw the many sides of Dr. King. I don't think he planned a march or executed a march without having been on his knees half the night, really seeking direction. And in the context of that hardworking, religious, um, spiritual man, there was also this sense of humor. And that's why I did this whole first, um, my whole first exhibit was called Mischief Makers. It was all, you know, people like Dr. King who've made social change, serious social change, nonviolence, and their silly side. I mean, the Dalai Lama is always giggling. You know, he and all his monks are, have this cheerful side. And, and Dr. King, I wouldn't know if it was cheerful, but it was funny. I mean, as in telling jokes funny and really laughing funny. And, but for me, that was fun and sitting near him when he spoke. He said once, 
I always like it when Joan Baez is here. Every time I say non-violent, she starts crying. And I did. I just sit there and blubber away because it was, it was extraordinary and moving. And, and he did what he was talking about. I didn't ask you about your painting. Do you have time to show me some of your painting? Sure, I'd love to. Well, let's go ahead and take a look. Okay. Now, do you keep this garden up yourself? Oh, I wish I did, no. I pick the flowers, and I weed, and I enjoy the garden. Did you build this as a studio? No, we built it as a bathhouse where you go and change clothes and stuff. Mm -hmm. But it turns out it's pretty perfect. I do my creations here. That's my dad, and that's my mom. They're not finished. None of this is finished. Very Those, handsome couple. Oh, they were a beautiful couple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and? And his lordship there. I'm taking on one of, I, I'm not good at wrinkles, you know, <laughs> so it's a challenge. Bob has got craggy, beautiful face now. And that's when he was a kid. And I have to decide whether I'm going to leave. These houses are plagiarized from his paintings. <laughs> and I don't know whether they work there well, this, or not. This painting has something in it. What is it? A certain Dylan spirit, even you were five years a kid. By a kid, you mean what, 18, 19, 20 years? It looks years like old? about 19 there. Huh. Looks like 19 or 20. And this one? was painted after that one? <laughs> yeah, this one I'm working on. Well, who else do we have here? Oh, well. Yeah. Oh, I like the expression on his face. <laughs> That's just... Michael Moore. <laughs> Quiet, unconcerned face, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah right, right. It's a good thing he and has over that here? smile. That is also unfinished, Alice Walker. And my son Gabe at two. And I'm working on that right now because he's too blue. I painted that about four right. years ago. Rob is extremely talented. When, do you, when did you begin painting? Acrylics and seriously, six years ago. Mm -hmm. Up till then, I drew a sketch. When I was in third grade, I did sketches of Bambi and sold them for three cents a piece. And then when I was in high school, I did likenesses of Jimmy Dean and sold them for $5 a piece. Mm -hmm. and, um, but I never got really serious about anything mm -hmm. till this stuff. Well, who else do we have here? These, this is the first portrait I ever did. This is my Sweet Sir Galahad of the art, of the art field. Because mm -hmm. somebody said, I said, I want to do portraits. And this friend of mine is an artist, and I, so I started scrubbing around, and then I'd bring in some charcoal. She finally looks like she got a little... She said, do you want to paint portraits? Mm -hmm. So when she left, I took a painting she had done, mm -hmm. and I went over it, and this came out. So I sent it I to her. I love the look in her eyes. Yeah. I don't know what she's... Some kind of angel looking. I'm aware, I'm aware that I'm speaking to many young people who, 
without this induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame would have no clue who I am. <laughs> My granddaughter had no clue who I was <laughs> until I took her backstage at a Taylor Swift concert where she got a selfie, an autograph, a t-shirt, and newfound respect for her grandmother. I'm looking at my notes because I'm underlined that I wanted to make sure that I got some advice from you. How about, to pick a mate? <laughs> no, about slowing down. About slowing about, down. About slowing down. And, you know, you're not my confessor, but I tend to go full throttle forward mm -hmm. all the time. Some, something within me says, well, if you're going to do anything worth doing. Then do it. Put head down, fanny up, just <laughs> go, go full forward all the time. Yeah. But you reach a point where you, you do realize that there are some things you can't do. I mentioned this before, you, you realize there's some, some things you want to do with your yeah. voice. Like walk up the stairs without somebody helping me. <laughs> <laughs> and my question is, do you have any advice about slowing down? You're in the process of trying to slow down mm -hmm. yourself. What's the best advice you can give me or anybody else? Because I need it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I've even advised that. Um, you know, how active you are, what comes out of that is what you create, and what comes out of that is going to knock you out. I mean, as we get older, it's, it's just one insult after another. But I do think you have to listen to them to some degree. I think I probably wouldn't be stopping my formal touring at this point, if I hadn't listened to some clues. You know, Yoo-Hoo, Baez, number one, I've been doing it long enough, and I kind of say, okay, I don't have to do this anymore, even though I love it. Um, and we were talking earlier also about what do you do now? I mean, the things you used to do on the sideline, um, like ride a bike or you know, get on a treadmill or whatever. Now you have to, or I have to, 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 to make my body function properly, to do the things that I do. You know, just a ton of stuff and meditation and diet and exercise and stretching and, you know, bore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you were well known for so many years for being able to sing in the higher ranges it's almost a mesmerizing. Eerie. Uh, yeah, maybe sometimes eerie, yeah. certain mystical. Now, can you still do that on occasion? Because the frame of reference here is I find myself, and maybe I'm kidding myself, but I say, you know, I'm not as good as I once was. But for once, I can do what I once did. Oh, okay. Do you find that about you singing? I can't sing any of those. I can't come near the voice I used to have. I can't, I can't get to a high note and sustain it. I can get to a high note if I know I'm coming right back down. <laughs> right. But, you know? Um, and that's what I was saying during the reinvention process. I had to see that this was normal for a voice and that I can't, because Miss Natural Talent, which is how I started off and went for so many years, that isn't going to carry me even with this reinvented voice, that I have to see a vocal therapist, I have to tape that lesson, I have to go back and practice that daily. With a vocal therapist? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, 
uh, teacher was good, but then at one point I thought, oh man, this isn't what I want to do at all. And I went to see ear, nose, and throat guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I took that thing, went down, took a look. Mm-hmm. I was hoping there would be nodules or something. We'd take them off and I'd be fine. Right. He said, no, you're 71. This is exactly where your voice is supposed to be. So and that was bad. <laughs> I wasn't happy with that. But at least I, something to reconcile. Let's project to the time that you have gone on to whatever is in the beyond. Mm-hmm. And we're holding a memorial service mm-hmm. for the great Joan Baez. If we're going to play one piece of music, what do you want it to be? There's um, a tenor named Burling. He's Swedish, B-J-O-R-L-I-N-G. And I listened to him since I was five. And he has, to me, the most moving, tearful, gorgeous voice. And I had there are a couple of songs of his that I would like to play. And then something the equivalent to what we did when Mimi died. And there was a tape I had of her making her laugh. She was in hysterics. It was my mother's 72nd birthday, and I was acting silly to make them both laugh. And Mimi had this barroom laugh, and I had the brilliant idea that at the end of her memorial service, in this big cathedral, that we play this tape of her laughing. It was spectacular. I mean, it just shattered all of the sort of gruesomeness, um, any morbidity that had been there that day was her laughter. So I'll see if I can find a tape of my own laughing. If we're going to play a tape, a recording of you singing, what would you like for us to play? Probably one of the, what did we say, eerie? What was the word? Not eerie, spooky, whatever, Mm. early ones. Moving, mesmerizing. (laughs) Um, probably one of the ethereal-sounding ones from the beginning. Well, name one. Let's see, what have I listened to recently? The Unquiet Grave, how about that? Ooh, it's sounds, a... sounds heavy. <laughs> they were all heavy. And people would say, why do you sing so many sorrowful ballads? Well, I didn't realize how sorrowful I was. <laughs> Joan, you've been wonderfully gracious with your time and giving of yourself what question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? Oh, I don't know. You pretty much covered the territory. Well, did you come in to this interview saying, well, if I don't talk about anything else, I want to talk about blank. Have we talked about it? We talked about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say. So please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. Till so much cavalry came and tore up the tracks again. And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind-the-scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.